Well, it's certainly a privilege and a pleasure to be here, to see what God is doing here. I've heard often of this church. I wonder even if uh, anyone here remembers the location in the post office downtown, because I have preached there, and I believe there was a storefront at some point, and I have preached there, and now I'm here, and it's a blessing. I've been around for a while, as you can tell, so, but nevertheless, uh, to be able to assist uh, the Dixons, Dr. Belcher, to see what God is doing here in this church. It's a wonderful blessing. And I have uh, picked a passage, uh, an entire book, the book of Obadiah. It's not a long book, but uh, it is full of material. We will never cover all of the material, nor will I try to, but we will try to find some highlights from uh, this book, and I invite you, if you would, to open with me to uh, the book of Obadiah, here in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, and we will read this, the Word of God. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they, not only, would they steal not only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap Beneath you, you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be destroyed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever." In the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off your wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. 
Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall shall possess their own possessions." The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherod shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And may God bless this, the reading, hearing, and indeed the preaching of his holy word. And let us ask for his blessing on it that he might speak to each of us this morning. Father, as we do gather together, we enter into your presence and we have acknowledged great glory goes to you. We have recognized, Lord, that we are very transient, we are fragile, we are feeble, and yet so often, nevertheless, we believe that we live this life in our own strength, in our own abilities, and we look at ourselves, Lord, and when we do that, we forget you. And we pray this day that we might understand something of who you are, something of who we are, and that you might give us the victory through Christ Jesus, your Son, and through your Spirit. Get this sinner out of the way. May you speak and work in ways we cannot imagine in each of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. D.L. Moody was facing the great Chicago fire of 1871. He lived in Chicago. The fire was uh, running through the city. It was coming to his house. Everyone was fleeing their homes. And it was basically a time where you had to evaluate, what do I want to save in my home? And so as they looked around, D.L. Moody's wife looked at a beautiful portrait that had been painted by a renowned uh, artist of D.L. Moody. And it was up on the living room uh, wall. And so as they looked what, to see what they should get, Mrs. Moody turned to D.L. and said, take that out. The argument did not last long. D.L. Moody said, you mean you want 
me to grab a portrait of myself and run out in the streets with all the people saying, Mr. Moody, what did you save from your house and you want me to hold this portrait up? He wouldn't do it. So she got a workman who cut it out very carefully, rolled it up, and took it out of the house. I think there was a lot of wisdom there, but it makes me wonder at times about our own lives. Do we walk around thinking that we are holding the portrait of ourselves out to everyone because of what we think of ourselves? Is it possible that in reality, each of us is actually naturally prone to go through life, in essence, each day walking around thinking about holding up ourselves? Pride is an attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency that is displeasing to God, and indeed He will judge the proud in heart. Pride at times appears to be impenetrable. We think we stand in our own strength. But before God, its fall is great. And so I want us to look at this topic of pride because honestly, we know it touches each one of us, sometimes deeply. I want to begin by looking at what I call an anatomy of pride. The first thing that we see is that pride is deceptive. It deceives us. We see this in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. God is speaking to Edom. They are a country south of Judah and Israel. They are sort of the brother, Jacob and Esau, but they are that unbelieving brother, that pagan nation. And they are actually watching Israel get buffeted, Judah get attacked, and they're actually standing off thinking, this is a good thing. But they are deceived. Pride makes us think we are big. Our reality assumes our importance. When pride makes us think we are big, then God becomes small. Someone once said, by definition, man is simply this, proud walking dust. But we get deceived, don't we? It's deceptive. It includes a false security. In verse 3, it says, You who live in the clefts of the rock. The rocks were a place of safety. Edom, there is a city that you can Google after the service sometime known as Petra. It's the original. If you've ever seen the signs near Chattanooga, see Rock City. Well, this is the original Rock City. And if you look it up, you'll see 
all sorts of ornate uh, decorations and things that actually the Edomites did not create. Those came later, but the rock it was like a fortress with a crevice that you had to walk through that was so narrow. No one will ever bring us down. You live in the cliffs of the rock. You think you're secure. Pride brings this sense of false security. And in our own lives, sometimes we think we're just secure in ourselves. Sometimes it's our job we think gives us security. It's our position, our gifts, our health, our strength, our retirement plan, our money, our spouse, our intelligence, our children. They'll take care of me. We say to ourselves, I got a handle on it. I'm okay. Deceptive, including a false security. Pride involves self reliance. Though you, verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle. The picture here is the eagle flying. Great freedom. Great independence. I rely on myself. Frank Sinatra made a song famous. I did it my way. Elvis sang it later. I did it my way. And everyone cheers. Yes, that's it. You do it your way. And it's our cultural mantra in many ways. Self-reliance. And then there is the pure arrogance of pride that we find in verse 3. It's to see you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down? Pure arrogance. Like that independent eagle soaring No one can stop me. I become my point of reference for everything. The world, the universe, it all revolves around me. And as we continue to look at the anatomy of pride, we see that it is godless. Because in verse 3, they ask this question, Who will bring me down? And it is a question that is declaring no one. No one. I am my, I am my own God. In essence, I'm living an atheistic life. Who could bring? No one could. Today we have what we call practical atheism. It's people who say, oh, I believe in God. But they never live as if there is a God. It becomes our immediate default, doesn't it? Who will bring me down? Who can touch my life? I'm okay. This is the anatomy of pride. It deceives us. It involves a false security. It involves self-reliance, pure arrogance. It's godless at the core. But let's look at the attitudes of pride. The attitudes of pride in this text. It's all pervasive. It touches us. It touches 
all of us in so many ways. Carly Simon sang a song back in the 70s. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Now that song's always bothered me. There are always the questions. Was it Mick Jagger? Was it Warren Beatty? You know, I still hear that song. It, it comes up every once in a while. You hear it. It can be in a restaurant, on the radio. My problem is the answer to the question, who is it about? I always think it might be about me. How did she know? How did she know? Attitudes of pride. The first thing we see in verse 8, intellectual pride. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? The wise men are the leaders. They are the counselors, the military strategists. They are the pentagon of Edom. Intellectual pride. We'll figure it all out. No one will ever come and invade us. Intellectual pride, it is so scary. I mean, you talk about being filled with yourself. It's so dangerous. As a freshman student at the University of South Carolina, I made that very frequent freshman mistake of signing up for the course Religion 101. You don't want to do that if you go to the state university. But, right, you're a good Southern Baptist kid growing up in the church. You, yeah, you, you're running from God. But you, Oh, if I take the Religion 101 course, yeah, I'll probably be okay. I went to the course the first day. His syllabus was about like this, and that was daunting enough. But the first hour, which it was a 50-minute, really, course, for the first course of the class meeting, he talked about the syllabus. And then he spent the other half of the course telling us all of his credentials and how many uh, journals that he was in and who's who in this and who's who in this. And look, I don't even think I was a believer, but I was raised in the church. And after we were done, I was like, I don't think this is the right guy to be teaching Religion 101. It's all about him. And thankfully, a few weeks later, I came to know the Lord. I had already dropped the course. That was very providential, too, quite honestly. Intellectual pride. Physical pride in verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed. Mighty physical strength. Vanity in your own health and ability, your own position, your athleticism, whatever it might be. We just think we're going to keep going. My father was something of a self-made man, but at age 69, he had his first health problem. And he actually uh, tried to avoid doctors, if at all possible. But the rest of his life, the next 15 or so years, he was going to see doctors. It seemed like all the time he could beat it, he could beat it. But eventually, he couldn't. Physical 
pride. There's social pride in verse 12. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Can you hear the Lord reminding Esau or Edom, this is your brother. There's some history and some past and some connection. But you're looking down on him. You are happy that he is unfortunate in his circumstances. It's social pride. We understand in our culture today there are all kinds of issues being flashed before us in this realm we call social justice. And we can easily say, this is extreme, this is extreme. But the real problem is we have to ask ourselves, do we see every person made, every man or woman made in the image of God? They are to be loved by the love of Christ. And we're not to be people that rejoice in others' misfortunes. He says in verse 11, In that day you stood aloof. On the day the strangers carried out his wealth. Judah and Israel previously were being invaded, were being ruined. And Edom, a little further south, a little safer. Well... They got what they deserved. Pride involves a loss of compassion. We create our own caste systems. We think of caste systems and we, oh, that's horrible over there. Wherever, India, wherever. But we create our own, don't we? And where do we usually fall in the caste system? Pride puts us at the top the system we lose compassion for those who are hurting we become insensitive to the needs around us because we're doing okay (laughs) we're happy with that and then there is violence verse 10 because of the violence done to your brother Jacob shame shall cover you Pride brings violence, and we think of all the stories of abuse and oppression in our culture today. But we become smug, aloof. Sometimes we oppress ourselves, we oppress others, we have our own ways, manipulation, guilt. Think of your own life. How does it operate? Is it to the glory of God or is it myself coming out? Well, it's not a pretty picture. And the Lord is not passive when it comes to pride. And so we go from anatomy of pride, attitudes of pride, to the annihilation of pride. Or we might more warmly say the humbling of the proud. Pride's fall is great. 
Verse 4 again. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. The eagle's nest. I've only seen an eagle flying once in my life. It was at Caesar's Head, South Carolina, back when you could actually sit inside the head or the mouth. And there I was with a former girlfriend uh, many years ago in college. And there we sat. There's the eagle. Oh, beautiful. Again, free, wonderful, glorious. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, I will bring you down. You will fall from the heights of your ego. I went to church and college with a young woman who was beautiful and intelligent and all the guys wanted to date her I would say well she was just very very friendly and warm and people enjoyed her and I lost touch with her for about oh 15 years or so but in the late 1980s she surfaced in the news You see, there was a presidential candidate who was rising up in the ranks and probably was going to be the presidential candidate for his party, but suddenly someone put a photo out in the old days, right before there was any internet, but it still became viral in some ways, of this young lady sitting on his lap on a yacht where she had spent the night and reporters had been hanging out. And that presidential candidate, and it was a different day, immediately fell to the bottom. He was disqualified. That was it. He was done. This close, right, to the most powerful man of the world. And basically, he just simmered out and off into the distance. Pride's fall is great. Pride's fall comes from God. His judgment. We see it. Verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. This is each of our great fear to become small, insignificant, nothing. And this is what he says he's going to do to them Verse 4, I will bring you down. Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy these wise men. That day is a day of judgment and God will judge pride. He will judge egotism. He will. It may take a while. It may be that day, the day of Christ. But he will judge it. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Some think this is a reference to the Babylonians. Coming in to destroy Jerusalem. 
Some think it is a reference to A.D. 70 when Rome destroys Jerusalem and the temple. Eventually, Edom is taken down and they become nothing. Pride's fall is thorough. Verses 5 through 7, If thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you've been destroyed, it is a prophecy. You're going to be wiped out and they're going to take away everything. If the grape gatherers come, they would take all the grapes. They will prevail, but you don't understand. You can't see it. You can't see yourself. You don't understand that your fall is coming. Pride will be judged. And let me just say for a moment, not in the notes, thinking about it on the way down here, sometimes God just knocks me around. You know, sometimes He just gets my attention. Sometimes the things I tell my wife or I think I expect of someone else, it turns around and I am the one doing it. And thankfully the Holy Spirit and I'm like, thank you, Lord. How could I be so self-confident? It's a good thing. He humbles the proud. Well, what is the antidote for pride? What is the hope for each one of us? Surely we understand it is in the gospel Verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. I'm not completely certain what this verse means, except I believe it is pointing to the reality that when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians, there is going to come a time where God will bring his people back after 70 years of exile. They will repopulate the land. They will build the temple. Nehemiah will build the wall. And in a few hundred years... The Son of God will come to Mount Zion and will be crucified and will shed his blood as this table reminds us today. He will give himself for us, those who believe. Mount Zion. In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape through Christ. We escape the judgment of God. Verses 19 through 21 are probably a picture of this restoration of the people after Jerusalem is destroyed. Verse 19, those of the Negev, that's the south country, will possess Mount Esau. Ultimately, the kingdom, not so much the literal kingdom of Israel taking over all this space, but in time... The kingdom of Israel will be established, the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Here's the promise. If you're in Christ, you'll be part of this reigning kingdom. There will be victory. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We proclaimed it. 
He is always gloriously being exalted. And when we enter his presence, all we will know, and this is unfathomable, all we will know is humility, humble worship, broken people redeemed by a Savior who is glorious. I cannot comprehend that for eternity. But it is the hope. The kingdom shall be the Lord. It shall be of Christ. And if you don't know Christ, you need to flee to him now. Brokenness is the way to enter the kingdom. Confessing your sin, repenting, turning to him. The late Dan Iverson was a Presbyterian pastor. His son Bill, I think, is still living, very elderly, but both of them very godly men. But Dan Iverson wrote a little chorus. It's actually in the Trinity hymnal today. And it's called, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. You may know that chorus. Someone in a contemporary realm, I don't know how long ago, decided to tweak Dan Iverson's words just a little bit. The Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. And they tweaked it and they put it this way. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Well, that's nice enough and I like that, but that's not the way Dan Iverson wrote it. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me. Melt me. Mold me. Fill me. And I really do think that's the key. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me that I might be filled and used by the Holy Spirit. May God enable us to comprehend this wonderful truth. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered in your presence. We pray we might truly see your great glory Open our eyes, we may see it more and more, that we may bend the will before you, be broken before you because of our sins, but be filled by your Spirit because of your promise to do so. Meet us at the table now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.